0: Welcome back to Conversations the Leaky Cauldron, episode 26, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters 26 through 30. Back with me, as usual, are my two esteemed esteemed colleagues, Ms. Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: It's going well. Welcome back. And happy birthday. Thank you for welcoming me back, and happy birthday, Wes. It is July 31st, and so as we were talking about in the pre-show, your birthday possibly jk rowling's birthday certainly neville and harry's birthday happy birthday
1: thanks yes it's it's an honor to be um sharing this birthday with such a great hero as um neville and uh harry's (laughs) also a, 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 a very esteemed colleague of ours so um yeah it's it's a fun set of chapters to be looking at with this as well as um you know they're they're sort of Coming up to another huge um, milestone in these in these uh, you know sort of years of Hogwarts, right? This is the the culmination of all of those. Um, so it's exciting stuff.
0: Yes, yeah, so it reminded me very much of the Roman god Janus, from whom we get the month January, a door opening and closing in one way, a beginning, end, and an end. And so interesting that we started this project last year and we were so close to the beginning and now we find ourselves uh, two podcasts away from the end. And, um, and so uh, one thing ending, another thing coming to be, uh, reminds me very much of like a snake shedding its skin um, or a circular snake like the Auroboros. But um, speaking of more present snakes, um, and Nagini and things that we have learned, well, actually, we should go back to the past because in the pre-show, what we were talking about were not just chapters 26 through 30, but also chapter 25. And Sarah, you had brought up a couple of issues that you thought we hadn't really given uh, attention to yet and that maybe we might found our conversation on those. So would you mind uh, illustrating those and maybe we can go from there?
2: Sure. Um Chapter So chapter um twenty five uh is titled Shell Cottage and um it it follows chapter obviously chapter twenty four where um we see Harry and um Ron and Hermione. Harry buries Dobby, uh which is a terribly sad moment. Um and then he he makes a choice to interview um Interview Grip, Griphook, who they say from Malfoy Manor first, and then to interview Ollivander, which sort of um, is supposed to represent, um, you know, him, him making the choice to go after the Horcruxes um, and not uh, to remain in search of the of the Hallows. Um, there's a lot we learn about um, about. Uh, like the geopolitics and geopolitical history of, you know, wizards and goblins. There's a lot we learn about that from Griphook. There's a lot we learn about wand lore from Ollivander. But in chapter 25, I think there are a couple moments um, where um, it it just, on the one hand, the chapter, I think, kind of serves as, um, uh, you know, a bit, Plot filler, like they they pass quite a bit of time at Shell Cottage and they prepare for their next their next adventure. But you know the beginning of the chapter, um, I, this is on, in my book. It's page 502. Um, um, Harry still reflecting upon his decision not to go uh, go after the Elder One, which basically Ollivander has confirmed exists. And it says the enormity of his decision not to raise Voldemort to the wand still scared Harry. He could not remember ever before choosing not to act. Um, he was full of doubts. And and um, Ron and they 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 have kind of this um, these couple pages where they start to wonder like, you know, have we have we misread all of the signs? Were we just too slow to figure things out? Um, and I think it's, I think that's, that's, that's interesting, uh, right? That he makes what is effectively a split second decision and second guesses it. And um, I think it sort of gets at some of the things we've been talking about um, that yield wisdom. Like, is it knowledge? Is it experience? Is it some combination of those things that, that like fashions or shapes instinct? Um, and when do you trust it, and when do you not? Um, later in that in that chapter is also when Lupin arrives and announces that Tonks is pregnant, and you have another one of those moments where there's like a little bit of levity, um, like just this they experience this enormous amount of joy, kind of like when they were listening to the radio broadcast, um, where they they forget for a moment all the shit that's happening. Um, anyway, that's what, those are the two things that I thought were yeah. important.
1: I mean, uh, the second one, not just that she's pregnant, right, but she's given birth. Um,
2: oh, yeah, she, yeah, the, that's right. She Sorry, had the yeah. Kid.
1: And, and Harry is named Godfather, which is, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, um, it, it makes him um, stand in the place then of Sirius Black to him. Uh, which he thinks about a little bit there at the very tail end of that chapter. Um, so I thought that was kind of, you know, that sort of rite of passage thing um, being being hit there as well.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, I mean, to that point, I think it will be made um, even more explicit by the end of the text uh, that parallel, or even stronger, a parallel. But I, I was interested in something you also brought up in the pre-show, Sarah. The the idea that Bill brings up about the differences between goblin ideas of proportionality and agreement in terms of business deals and wizard ones. Um, Because frankly, when I was, when the concept was first given to me, I didn't exactly understand what, um, what was being suggested. And, um, you know, frankly, the whole situation reminded me a little bit of the merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. Um, And the, the, sort of like what Shylock um, wants, as opposed to, uh, I, I forget the name of the character who's uh, negotiating with him for a pound of flesh, uh, Rodrigo or, or something like that. I can Antonio. Mm-hmm. Antonio, yes, very good. And, um, and so I was just, I, A, what do you think the differences in ideas of proportionality are between goblins and, um, and, and wizards what, what do you think about the whole goblin and wizard dynamic and the differing histories and the differing ideas that um how history is told depends on who is telling it and thus the questions that uh raises about um the merit of the stories one is told and the truth of them um and and did you have any like idea uh i might have already asked this in one way or another but did you have any idea how how grip uh idea of I guess justice or fairness uh, would differ from, say, a more conventional idea or our idea, if we even know what that is.
2: Well, I don't. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Bill explains things um, in the, the chapter Shell Cottage. I'm, I'm pretty sure Hermione has known for a while because she actually like did the reading and listened to the lectures and um, history of magic, and she he talks about it in chapter 24 as well um just before they speak to Griphook. hook I think or maybe I'm just getting all kinds of confused but just that um you know there's there's wrongdoing on all sides um I think Griphook hook is particularly um I, I don't know impressed is the wrong word he he frightens um he frightens Harry a little bit when he acknowledges a couple times that like the that you buried the elf without magic and in the movie that's that's meant to make Harry look um like noble in the eyes of 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 Griphook but I think um when I read this this time I think I recognized how just how foreign they are to like the cultures are to one another um and when Bill describes their their theory of property I thought that was that was really interesting. Um, I think it sets Harry up to look exactly the opposite of like his, his worldview is the exact opposite of the the fountain in the ministry of magic with like the, the wizards on top of all of the other creatures that that's, you know, that, that is um, well described earlier in the book. But um, at the end of chapter, I think it's chapter 25 when Bill says that like, um they that goblins don't believe in like inheritance of of goblin property by wizard owners that like if a wizard purchased something from a goblin, then they basically rented it, and that um to a goblin the owner is the maker um it so that seems like fundamentally different than um than the wizard view of property, not like. Um, and so it seems like, uh, in this, I don't know, I'm trying to tie it to, um, Harry becoming a godfather, which is, you know, like you said, Wes, definitely a rite of passage, definitely a moment where you are not a child, but an adult, um, that like, you know, there, there are, there are divisions and impasses that, that like no amount of you know holding hands and singing songs is going to um is going to overcome like that's just a really fundamental difference in entry point i don't know i don't know if that's even really answering your question
1: well i mean the the question of ownership is i think pretty interesting the way that it it arises here because um this object um then it has a kind of collective ownership like the goblins own it like it's not it's not really clear that like whichever particular goblin made it is even still alive at all but that like because a goblin made it it belongs to some goblin somewhere right mm-hmm. I, I thought that mm-hmm. was kind of a strange like insight maybe into their sort of idea of of ownership as this kind of collective thing um that that it re- it relates to their you know, their pride and their skill at, at crafting and making and, um, you know, the kind of uh, disconnect there because they don't know how to make wands. That seems to be like a really big um, difference, I guess, between goblins and wizards. It's like the wizards have never shared that knowledge with goblins. And so goblins, as a result, or like, you know, just in in tit for tat kind of thing, thus like are not really trusting of wizards either. Um, so there's this kind of, you know, this collective element to it, this, this power dynamic there. I, I thought about, you know, with um, Hook sort of not fully trusting them. Um, he seems to know that Harry is going to try to trick him. Right. And um, as much as Bill tries to warn Harry and, you know, there's really nothing he can do about it. Right. He's, he's made his deal. And um, and sure enough, um, Grip Hook gets you know comes out on top um, when when the final uh, Denouement comes uh, on this on this river of burning gold, right? Which is a great scene that I'm sure we'll we'll look at here in a minute. But um, there, there's something really interesting about this kind of partial trust, but then ultimate double cross. Like no no way was this going to turn out um, with all parties sort of like understanding one another. But they just kind of have to muddle through because they've got this um, kind of bigger, bigger problem here. Um, and I thought that was something that the, the little Lupin interlude, uh, the Godfather thing, just kind of helps like, again, like pull back the perspective a little bit and be like, it, it's a, it reminds me of the, the wedding scene way earlier, um, where it's like, oh, there's all these other things that, you know, happen in people's lives um, that this this great kind of conflict and crisis is ultimately sort of a passing thing, um, but but has to be sort of dealt with before you can get back to all that that more pleasant sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting and just, as you said, the the ideas of ownership, the the one idea, the goblin idea that whichever race of people, uh, a more collective idea, right? Produced an object uh, owns that object because ostensibly they have the greatest possible knowledge of it because it came from them. And then opposed to that is the wizarding idea, which is if you produce, you know, the, the money or, you know, whatever is symbolic of money necessary, um, the galleons necessary to take an object, then that's good enough though. You might not understand it quite as well. It it reminds me some of the parable of the vines, and, you know, how there are some vines that are old and some vines that are new, but they're all part of the same tree. Um, it, I, I, I just, I wonder if there's not only a political difference between the goblins and the wizards, but sort of a religious difference, too. And I, I wonder whether that has a parallel in the primary world as well. Um, because it's interesting, because there are potentially some interesting elements coming out in in Rowling's writing here, especially given, say, like the name of Grip Hook. Grip, Hook, Grab, and the profession as a banker dealing with money and more ancient magic than uh, the wizarding people understand. I I think that's fairly suggestive and interesting.
1: I I don't know that there's... um much that I can speak to about that, like the comparison with Shylock or the, the uh, subtext that you're reading into it. I I just don't feel like I have a whole lot to say about that.
0: Sure, I guess my question is just to what extent do the, and you know, it's a question that of course we can pass over, to what extent do the thoughts of the author um, bleed out from them into their secondary world um, and uh, affect how they portray uh, symbolic relationships between peoples. Um, uh, and, and to what extent can somebody just, you know, sort of autochthonically generate new relationships between people that are completely unique and are in no way um, uh, based uh, in contrast or in comparison to those that they know. Um, I don't know, maybe not an interesting question. Maybe we wanna focus on uh, the Ocean's Eleven sort of breaking in to the great Green Gods instead and the meeting of the blind dragon and the riding on the back of him because definitely we have some action in this as we mentioned earlier.
2: Yeah, for sure and we can't forget about Aberforth or all the things, I mean like a lot happened so I think Maybe in the interest of time, we talk about you know ideas and questions and reactions to the to the next chronological piece, which is the um, the invasion. Um, what do you guys think? What should we attend to?
1: Yeah, I I think we should stick more to the the story here.
0: Well then, Aberforth, what did we think about meeting this old goat?
2: <laughs> that's funny, because literally, you know, his patroness, his patronus is a goat. Um, was unintentional? I don't know if that was non-intentional. That that's very clever. Um, yeah, I I thought he, this was an he was an important character and. It like wove some really like some really good humanizing story or perspective on Dumbledore for me. Um, I remember the first time reading this story, um, like obviously you know over a decade ago. um, I remember feeling like I finally we finally got the answer to the pieces of the puzzle that were missing for a long time, and um, I like the way that Harry. The way that um, Aberforth weeps at the discussion of the death of his sister, I think is really moving. But then the way that Harry um, kind of pieces together what happened on Dumbledore's last night and how that was actually all about his brother and his sister and not about something bigger, but that yet there would be nothing bigger, I guess. And that was the lesson maybe he needed to learn. Um, I thought that was, that was just to me, masterful storytelling. Uh, and I think watching him um, become, or like watching him be kind of combative with another adult who looks like Dumbledore is probably pretty cathartic for him because he's so angry with Dumbledore, but also maybe an indication that he's sort of coming into his own. Um, yeah, what what did you guys think?
1: I Yeah, I guess the, I couldn't remember where the blue eye came in for a long time, but then as they started making more references to Dumbledore's family, I sort of got this vague recollection that his brother was still out there somewhere. Um, and I think it's, you know, pretty impressive that J.K. Rowling, you know, has... Aberforth there the whole time as the bartender of the Hogshead, right, this bar that I guess comes into the story in the third book maybe when they're like exploring Hogsmeade for the first time, or maybe it's mentioned even before that, but like just an incredible bit of plotting, um, like to to just keep that in her back pocket all along and then sort of bring him out here at this this critical um turning point, which, yeah, it's, it's really well woven in with the stories about Dumbledore that we've also been getting hints about, uh, mostly in this book, but, you know, and at the end of that sixth book where he's drinking the potion, yeah, we can only sort of guess at what that might be about, I think, I think as much as, you know, his, his feeling of guilt is, is a part of that, I think it's also his, his friendship with Grindelwald. You know, and seeing that he's like being betrayed in that moment, or being at least let down, right, by Grindelwald revealing sort of his true colors, and so having to relive that aspect of it has got to be at least as at least a part of, of that kind of anguish that he's undergoing in, in the uh, um, the cave. Um, and it's I think it's really unsettling how that is then mirrored by by Voldemort's reaction of like rage and fear when he realizes oh you know they stole just a cup they stole they must know right about his um, his cruxes and so this like this sense of like the thing that you trusted having betrayed you it it sort of passes it jumps from Harry with Vold- uh, with uh, Dumbledore you know sort of letting him down um Aberfirth uh, well rather the the memory that we get from Aberfirth about and Dumbledore's best friend Grindelwald lets him down and, and now also <laughs> with Voldemort of all people sort of being, being um, terrified, right? That his secret is out. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Several interesting things about Aberforth are that his Patronus is a goat whereas Albus's is a phoenix. His is very much grounded and stubborn as if he is sort of like the willpower or to the intellect of Albus Dumbledore. Though he does look... A lot like Dumbledore, in the same way that Harry looks a lot like James. He also, very interestingly, is willing to lie for Harry immediately upon meeting him, um, and then it even reveals the the great family lie that both Albus and he were privy to about their uh, their poor. Um, uh, disordered sister, their sister who had magic within her, but could not control it because of uh, tremendous abuse at the hands of local boys when she was young. Um, and uh, I, I, I think uh, what he does is does a good job of shows the complexity of the relationships that people find themselves found within. Uh, Albus has a relationship with Aberforth of filial bond and then sort of a protective bond of his younger sister, and then also sort of a connection and bond to their dead uh, mother and father now to, you know, take care of the family, to be head of the family, as Averworth says, uh, with ostensibly scare quotes. I think he scoffs at that when he says it. Um, but also a relationship with Grindelwald, uh, you know, a very similarly talented young person, as well as uh, Dumbledore's relations with the leading wizards of the, the age. It, it seems as if we had this one-dimensional representation of him as this ultimate headmaster sort of gandalf-like divinity figure and now we're seeing him in much more human terms as we also notice differing accounts of him so like something we brought up earlier that uh you know we have this goblin history as well as the history from professor bins a wizard and so because of the differing natures of those history they're epistemological questions that come up. Well, the same thing is happening, happening with Dumbledore, too, right? We have a Rita Skeeter account, uh, who doesn't seem to like him that much, uh, and, you know, we can see why, uh, but there are also doting accounts that Aberforth mentions. In fact, himself claiming that there's potentially a prejudice with Harry and Hermione and Ron. And then he does something that I consider sort of nasty, but may, maybe also liberating. He, he brings doubt back into the equation. He, he says, well, you don't have to do anything that Dumbledore, that Albus told you to do. He's dead and he, people get hurt when they follow his, his schemes as he, he derisively calls them. And so I guess uh, I wanted to mention several things that I thought were interesting, but also ask you about the fact that he, you know, he tries to play the role of liberator uh, between Harry, the group, and the task.
1: Right, yeah. yeah I thought what, that was, what was interesting. your question uh, did I did I miss something?
2: <clears throat> yeah, I just wasn't sure what the question was, like what do we make of him um attempting to free Harry of some sort of duty that he feels he's bound to?
0: yeah, what do you think of him coming in from that slant? not supportive but rather dismissive of the uh the 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 responsibility that Dumbledore gave to Harry and the three in total.
1: In there, I was just going to say, like, I thought it was, it was very quickly like turned into him helping them, you know, complete their task essentially. Like, although that is like raised, um, and maybe that's even the thing that he really does believe is best for them to do just to, to leave and hide and, and get out. You know, it's like he then turns to the the painting of his sister of all things. And, and like sort of gives her the nod. Um, And then, you know, the true hero of the series finally reappears on the page, uh, Neville, who's like the draggled and just like overjoyed at seeing Carrie back. Um, So it's like they, it's like this kind of last temptation of Christ kind of moment, right? Like you can like, you can leave everything. You can can just go and try to be safe somewhere. Um, But it's very, I think, you know, very quickly just, turns into okay this is like the big end of the series that we're about to see they're gonna they're back at Hogwarts finally after you know 600 pages normally it only takes like a hundred or two for them to get back to Hogwarts at the start of a book this time it took them 600 but they got there so finally we're gonna see you know what we've been waiting for
2: yeah I mean I think the fact that they look so similar I think that provides, I mean, narratively, I think it provides Harry the chance to when, when Aberforth presents a, well, you could just quit and like run away and hide yourself. And Oh, by the way, you have to hide these other two people because they'll never um, live safely in this new regime because they're known to be working with you. What he, what he I think presents them with is at least visually it's a chance for Harry to instead like actively take on something that he felt he was shouldered with for quite some time right like instead of um instead of oh well Dumbledore gave me a task to do he like he he visually leans into it I think by by reacting to the challenge posed by someone who looks just like Dumbledore I don't know if that That makes any sense but I'd like from a theatric perspective I think it has that that kind of visual effect but um I mean I I'm struck by how how much Aberforth claims to have like given up right and yet he he definitely he doesn't turn in Harry um and he like uh at great cost to himself uh welcomes them in and then challenges the other Death Eaters to like you know he lies about the patronus um at, at great risk um and it's almost as though he i think i don't know how much he believes what he is saying about you know the order of the phoenix is finished um it's all over my brother often gave tasks to people without regard to what it would do to them um you know i think uh I I guess I'm the the swiftness with which Aberforth is almost instinctive in defending Harry, Ron and Hermione, as well as how, how quickly he allows them to continue through his pub. He just seems rather like, like cantankerous and not actually believing he's not actually the figure who is so disillusioned that he is, you know, uh, that he's that he's given up completely and um, you know in that sense maybe he is a, the last test but um, I think for me the the thing that the character also presents is that there are re- like like we've been saying that there are different side there are so many sides to one story right and that sometimes in school we learn one side um, you learn like the wizard history but you don't learn the goblin version of it or for a really long time like Draco Malfoy is this, in, this like terrible villain of a boy and then all of a sudden it starts to become increasingly less black and white um and then you know we're almost at the point where we kind of pity him or maybe he even is trying to do the right thing as best as he can and maybe maybe for selfish reasons but um like it it just I think it the story of Albus and Aberforth and um, Ariana and Kendra and their dad, um, the name of which, of whom is, is escaping me. But that whole story just reminds me that like, people have a context in which they operate. And that context is individual and psychological as well as cultural, right? And they operate within that context. And I think it's really easy to, to judge when we don't know context and um, it's really easy to reduce people to say like their accomplishments or to their wand or um, you know to the house that they belong into or to the class that they come from or whatever um, but not really get to know their context and for me like Aberforth and Albus to me that's just like a really interesting commentary on the, the the ways that Different contexts or different characters might define greatness differently, right? Like, just because we've loved Albus Dumbledore doesn't mean that like Aberforth is wrong. I mean, he was a better sibling than Albus was. He would have been a better caretaker of their sister than the young boy Albus Dumbledore was, right? Um, like, yeah, he's his Patronus is a goat, but there's nothing wrong with goats right? Like there's nothing wrong with never contributing to transfiguration today or like coming up with some magical alchemical formula. Like what if greatness can also include like running a bar, right? You know what I mean? Like, um, I think it's, uh, I think that that's, that's sort of what I got out of that is that like, like there's no such thing as one way to be good um goodness may always you, i don't know if that makes any sense but um yeah
1: well i i just really like that you know the way that albus and aberfirth are juxtaposed here is then like immediately um you just you then get harry and neville juxtaposed um you know through the through this secret passageway and they've been you know doing yeah, like their good heroic deeds, um, each on their own, Um, Neville, of course, working within the school and um, just uh, and the expectations that still, right, although they both have the same ultimate goal because of their different, you know, ambits that they're working within, right? the, the fields that they're plowing or whatever, they have a really different idea about like what to do in this moment. Um, And and Neville's expectations and all the kids in the school um, is really different from, of course, what like Harry, Ron and Hermione all sort of like understand and know they need to do.
0: Yeah, a few things about that. It's interesting too. to what extent Aberforth might then represent with his goat Patronus, uh, not necessarily blindly rushing in, but blundering ahead, not maybe necessarily with the most elegant plan, and maybe two halves of the same coin, uh, the idea that there's a time for theory and a time for action, sort of an Aristotelian thing going on there, if we're, we continue to contrast them. And he, like Dumbledore, is also a psychopomp uh, for getting somebody into the school, whereas, of course, uh, Albus Dumbledore, in his name, one is invited to Hogwarts in the first place. It is Aberforth who leads one subterraneanly uh, there. Uh, through his bar. He also seems to hold a meeting place of the mines in the same way that Albus does, but again, in a more earthy fashion. Um, But about Neville and the place that he seems to occupy or have occupied at Hogwarts um, uh, during Harry's absence, a couple things about that. One is, wow, it's really late in the year. I had no idea that they were past March. I think they said they might have been, they were past some sort of break in the spring. I don't know if they said Easter, Yet. Um, two, uh, the Caros I thought were fairly interesting characters. Um, but um three, Neville seems to have really picked up Harry's slack while Harry's been gone. He seems to have really fit into the role of Harry. And so we've talked about him sort of being a stand in for Harry and J.K. Rowling explicitly making that connection when uh, essentially Voldemort choosing to try and kill Harry made him the chosen one rather than Neville, who I suppose is the unchosen one then. Um, uh, I think it's very interesting that he sort of that he, he really becomes Harry at the school in Harry's absence, though also maintains a deference for Harry thinking, you we all knew you must have been up to something. Um, and and just on a personal note, if there were going to be a piece of literature that J.K. Rowling were gonna write in addition to what she's already written, I'd be very interested in hearing from uh, Neville, Ginny, and Luna's perspectives, what, what that year without Harry, Ginny, and Ron, or excuse me, Harry, uh, um, Hermione, and Ron was, really, uh, like.
1: Yeah, that would be a, I'm sure there's a fan fiction out there, but, you know, that would be great to get from J.K. Rowling herself, um, uh, at some point. It's interesting to me that she kind of seems to be, like, t- going more along the lines of the, um, you know, the kid who has magic and isn't, like, shown how to guide it and use it properly, right? That That seems to be sort of first brought in with um the character variana and and that seems to be the real like idea or theme or whatever that she's most interested in kind of developing in in all these um you know the fantastic beast series um that that's like the big bad right the the kid who just doesn't know how to control his powers and and whose powers are sort of like turned inward or something I forget the the special name for that um but anyway the the whole story of like Neville and Ginny and Luna's you know year at at Hogwarts here that would be a, a cool like parallel um, and I think it honestly it would have been really great if that story were told in place of a lot of what we get in this book this book uh, is a lot yes. of like waiting around like okay I, I agree that, that that's like important to see that aspect of like Harry's growth and sort of wrestling with that and and having to be sort of patient, or rather just, you know, deal with his impatience or or whatever it is that we're getting in a lot of this book. But like, I think it could have been a a way better story if we sort of moved a little bit more back and forth. And we're in Hogwarts with other characters, you know, and and seeing things from their point of view. Um, I feel like that would have been pretty doable and, and and pretty rad. Um, (laughs) Honestly, um, But, you know, this this book, of course, you know, it finishes strong.
0: You know, that is interesting, though, to what extent this book is um, a a story of denial, a a story of negation. Almost like, uh, you know, I would have to go back through and see whether there's more dark imagery than light imagery, but it's like we're denied the traditional uh, Harry Potter narrative. We don't get to go to school. We don't get to see Quidditch. We don't get to... um, uh go to class and meet our professors and the new professor for the new time. It's like it goes totally chaotic. It's it's as if it is itself um Milton's um uh, sort of abyss in book two of Paradise Lost. That um and, and it does remind me quite a bit of uh the Return of the King and the journey of Samwise and and Frodo that it's it's sort of grueling and long and less pleasant than uh, the the books before and because it's missing things that made the story great but uh i i don't know what to do with that is that because this is the close of the book that this is the night that comes to the day that the the pleasure of imagining a new world is now giving way to the um uh uh Actuality of the ending of the story, perhaps also the reason so many games of Game of Thrones fans disliked the end, the ending season of that story as well.
1: I mean, for my money, it's just like sort of a meandering um, plot in this in this one. Like, there's a lot of really good stuff, uh, but there's also just like, I mean, I. I haven't read this one as much as the other ones and maybe it'll grow on me if I read it more, but um, I, I just feel like I, I don't feel that urge to like keep reading, you know, the way that is so powerful in all the other books in the series. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe that's intentional and, and there's something she's she's kind of experimenting with there, but I I just think, you know, she kind of had a very complex story to tell in this book and this is what she came up with I'm not sure.
2: So I'll say something that just, just on, uh, as a counter argument, I'm not entirely sure that I, I buy this. Um, and this is nothing against Neville West because I, I do agree that he is, (laughs) he is quite something. Um, but, um, like you said, he like picks up the mantle with Harry gone, but what he does and, and what he does, he, and, um, uh, all of the other DA members, like the kinds of resistance that they're engaged in, um, they wouldn't necessarily, I don't think that they'd be possible without the example of Harry uh, to to come before them. And um, I don't think that they are successful, like, on their own, right? They They are like, they are acts of like sabotage, but they're not, they don't really seem to they They seem more like acts of childlike resistance, not that they're childish but um but just um they don't seem directed at an end goal and I think maybe like the you're right i think you're I think we're right to point out that the seventh book is of a different character, you know, for all the reasons that you listed, chief among which is like there are no teachers um that. And the teachers that they do encounter are um, like Lupin, who Harry yells at, and um, Ollivander, who is terribly weakened, and Dumbledore, who is made, um, made imperfect at best, um, you know, by, by virtue of his absence and rumors and all of that. But there are no teachers. There's no classroom. And yet, I would, I would argue that they learn just as much um, Stumbling around in the dark, um, you know, hit, you know, hit and miss at uh, uh, in Godric's Hollow, hit and miss at Malfoy Manor. Um, And yet they're not, I don't know, they're not missing completely because they are, they are like eliminating these horcruxes. It just, it seems like, it seems like, yes, it's a real deviation from the previous six is that deviation, isn't that a valuable space to talk about like what, um, you know, what happens when school ends, right? Um, What kind of learning do you do in the world when maybe the stakes are higher or maybe the stakes aren't higher, but just when you don't have teachers anymore. Um, And, you know, they went a year early, right? So this isn't exactly like normal graduation, but it does seem, I don't know I, I think the kids who are still at at Hogwarts like they have been waiting for Harry to come back like they're not their their resistance is not um like doesn't is not i don't know it, i don't know that it would exist if, if if it were not for harry's example i'm thinking of like in um in in schools when um you have um well, this always, this always seems to happen to me because I don't ever have good ideas. I'm just decent at executing things. But like when someone vacates a post and you step in and you do everything that they did, you maybe do it a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more efficiently, but there isn't a lot of new, right? And there isn't a lot of like, in a, I don't I don't know if I'm, maybe I'm not articulating this well, but I feel like I see, a, I see a difference in character um, that, that's not wholly bad. I like this book more maybe than like book six. So I think I just felt like the pattern of going back to school and going to Quidditch matches and going to class, I just felt like it was getting old. Um, and it wasn't, I don't know, they needed like a boost from, from the nest, but that, that could just be me.
0: Well, that's interesting because then the chaotic element like we've been talking about, uh, if this is a story of buildings, Roman, of character formation, of the development of the young individual from adolescence to adulthood. um, And this last year is sort of when you, when one gets placed out in the world and has to govern oneself by one's wits and one's learning and one's skills alone, then it it makes a lot of sense that um, it would be more meandering, less pre-packaged in the way that the others are also, I think there might be a symbol here for, well, you, you young generation have enjoyed the fruits of the older generations, but now you're responsible for producing them yourselves. And so you might've been very critical of how things were, but now look at this book where, you know, it, 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 the events are subject essentially to your will alone without an institution mitigating them. Look, look at all that's missing. You, you have to add all of this in. It doesn't just happen. And so I think there might also be sort of a, a comment on, and I, I think we did mention this a couple episodes ago, but just when one is put out on one's own for the first time, it is dark and scary and without uh, rules to how one uses one's time and energy being as set as they once were, especially if one were in Hogwarts and now one is you know, sort of operating between tents in the forest. Um, uh, uh, there's going to be confusion there's going to be a lot learned about oneself, but things are not going to be as organized or or as perfectly executed uh, as um, when, you know, you had master teachers, um, you know, teaching you within a space that was perfectly um, put together and assembled with all the objects necessary in order to convey lessons to you within a superstructure of more masters teaching other aspects of math, uh, you know, magic, within another superstructure of like the the school and the the magical governing body itself making sure that this is all um allowed for it, it's as if we feel at each level um of activity the the lack of all of this the lack of the teachers the classroom the school and even uh the political superstructure that we can't um that we can't even trust here so it, it's as if things are less organized and less efficient but um in that in that way more revealing of i guess the people that they've actually become
1: i've been thinking about the comparison with um return of the king um i think what i would say to that is just that there's a pretty clear goal uh and maybe that's in both books right there's a clear goal in in the sense that we know we have to destroy these objects. That's like the thing we have to do. Um, But whereas in Tolkien's story, it's a very direct sort of like, take the ring to the fire, right? It's like pretty um, straightforward in a sense. Here, it's way more vague, right? There's like a a number of different objects. We don't know where they are. We don't know for a while how to destroy them. we don't even know if if it's this class of mysterious objects, the Horcruxes, or the other class, the Hollows, that we should be chasing after for a little while there. And so there's these kind of episodes, and we, we've talked about this, right? You have these episodes of kind of clarity where it's like, okay, now this is the goal, like break into the Ministry, get the locket, uh, whatever. Um, break into Gringotts, uh, get the cup, or whatever might be down there in the um, in the vault, because we don't actually know, right? so there's like these these kind of episodes where it's it's a clear goal that comes into view and we go um kind of clattering towards it for a little bit there and then we've got a we've got to regroup we've, we're broken we've got to um come back together and that's where i think it's helpful what you just said about like the nesting of stories within one another cuz cuz then you have this kind of larger story comprised of all seven books within which this one fits Pretty nicely, actually. Like as a counterweight, yeah. Like Sarah, you were saying to all those six other books, where they keep, keep doing basically the same thing um, with some variations in each one, right? So, uh, th- this one has a, a an interesting kind of relationship um, to its its literary predecessor in Tolkien and to its more immediate, you know, other books in the series, um, and the the sort of way that it recapitulates these like mini quests within it um, is, is, is it gets, it gets the job done, I guess. I just, I would have wanted, like as a reader, I would have wanted to jump back and forth a bit and not be stuck with Harry and Hermione and Ron the whole time. But like, like happens in Tolkien's books, we jump between, um, like half of the book is about, um, Strider and Gandalf and what they're doing over there with, uh, Merry and Pippin. And then half of the book is about Frodo and Sam. And Sam is just, like, the greatest, like, maybe the only character in fantasy literature who's <laughs> Neville is Sam, and so that I can, I can, I can deal with, you know, <laughs> some, some maybe some, sort of boring parts in that, that, that half of the book, because, well, I, I miss, I miss more Neville in this book, I miss more Ginny in this book, and uh, I'm, I'm, that's all I've really, that's all I'm really saying, I guess.
0: <laughs> I
2: understand. I that. love that, um I love that, uh uh Neville's grandmother like is too much for the Death Eaters. That's I mean, and that like yeah. I love that that he is so effusive and proud of the fact that she's proud of him. And like I, I, I agree that it would have it would have been great to kind of flash back and forth, but I don't know, there's something about maybe at least for the reader, but also for Harry, not knowing, like, what is the legacy, what kind of legacy did he leave at Hogwarts, like, what, I think that, that him not knowing, that's, that's almost more frightening, right, like, not knowing what kind of Hogwarts he's walking into, not, not knowing how much, how much has changed or not changed without him, like, you know, it might add like the absence of us as readers knowing anything about the, this the, the Hogwarts resistance, you know, hashtag resist. Um, <laughs> like it, if, if we don't, if we know about it and Harry doesn't, um, I think it changes our level of like pity for him. Um But if we don't know about it, then we are as kind of like it, it amplifies the loneliness that he might, feel um not and again like i'm with you it would have been cool to hear about it but um i think that that's why when he when he gets back into the room of requirement and he sees like all of the ways in which neville has taken what he started and uh, quite frankly made it better right like neville understands the room of requirement better than anyone neville's resistance is like pretty good and um you know um he endures you know physical torture um he you know he he and somebody else they like rescue other kids like my my imagination is that it would be a pretty great story about like the hogwarts resistance movement but i feel like it it's also really good for harry to then come back and be like oh shit i wasn't the only one doing anything like um but also like what he has to do in resistance is of a fundamentally different character than what everybody else has to do and i think that's also important for him to know right that like what the kind of resistance that michael corner can lift up or even that ginny or ron or hermione like what is going to be asked of harry is is not not of a degree but of a kind different right like they um like risking one's life versus giving one's life like that is I don't know. I um I think it it that's part of what makes it so much more exciting when he comes back and he's like, "Oh, oh, we're not in at all alone in this. Um we never have been." And um this reminds me that I need to go do my job, right? Um and not, you know, not just like fall back into kind of the way that he might have resisted had he stayed at Hogwarts, had he never taken on this this burdensome thing? I mean, we're sort of drifting from the the reading, but um, I I don't know. Does that I don't know if that makes any sense, but
0: it makes yeah. a lot of sense. Go on, Wes.
1: Uh, no, I just uh, I mean, I think yeah. Once he's back, it is really. Striking how um, he has to kind of argue with them about what what the right thing is to do next um, and how he, I guess for their protection, right, still doesn't tell them. Even though at this point, Voldemort knows that Harry knows about the Horcruxes, Harry still doesn't tell anyone else who doesn't already know, right? And like, he's gonna keep doing that as, as his job alone, which I don't know, um, you know, it's not impossible that somebody would have spotted right the the hat um hanging out on on some where is it and it ends up being like on a bust or something there in the room of requirement somewhere so he he sort of he sort of doesn't give them the full story but like continues going on his personal quest right while they're all like excited about fighting back essentially um so i i guess he does he does mention right like we need to find this this diadem um but I don't know that that is quite taking them into his confidence right, and like getting getting their um their help on his his job they, they're he doesn't even
2: in he doesn't even tell professor McGonagall, right, but as right. soon as yeah as soon as as soon as he says I'm on orders from Dumbledore, she's like, "Oh well, man, the battle stations. Like, we will take care. <laughs> we will, right? Like, it's almost as though like him saying I'm doing this thing. I can't tell you what it is, but it Dumbledore. It's like a a code, right? Or like um, he said the magic word, and she's like, "Oh well, uh, we will rise to the occasion." um and defend the castle militarily as best as we can while you while you do this thing that you haven't told me what it is but it's like enough of a code to um garner her trust in his in his like secrecy Mm -hmm. um but i i love her i yeah um so the fact that she came back and was so like calm about um with the caros and was um, also PS could you guys I think I would have been just every day annoyed if I had to solve a riddle in order to get into my goddamn dorm room um, at the Ravenclaw that's it that's proof alone that I do not belong in that house Um, but I don't know (laughs) Um, I didn't that I was like I would never have been able to solve either one of those riddles in order to get into that dormitory.
1: Um. Well, yeah, it's it's like you have to show that you're thinking about it seems to be the main thing though, right? Like neither of them gives like, a, they're not the sort of thing that seems to have a, a single answer, I guess. the Here's the thing I wanted to ask actually about like a, a weird continuity problem that I'm seeing here. Like the use of the um, Imperio and Cruciatus curse by harry and mcgonagall here um, how do they why do they get away with doing that without some sort of like consequence or or anything like they i guess harry has to do it maybe but um, it's it struck me i guess that they're using these curses all of a sudden um, and that that seems to be okay and like good
0: I noticed that too. And it What surprised me first was that Harry used the Crucio curse in front of McGonagall and then that she used one too, the Imperial, I believe right after him. And that she was so okay mm-hmm. with that. I, I, yeah, I thought that was almost a breach in character of her un unless um, the other argument I saw for that is that when the government is corrupt, so are the laws that they enforce and thus, um, as those are the three unforgivable curses during a time of lawfulness, during a time of lawlessness, potentially there is no legitimate authority except for one's own judgment. And those curses, if, if the battle involves them, might well be used. I, I think uh, Harry actually was given some guff about that when he was trying to escape um, with, with everybody um, looking like him with the Polyjuice potion, um, I think in book six that uh, he was still using stunning spells, that he, ne- he needed to use something with a little more oomph mm-hmm. and it was a little less characteristic of, of him. So th- those were the two ways I saw it. I saw that either as a breach, and, and it did strike me, Wes, or, or, or I just didn't understand whether maybe the laws were no longer considered just and no longer valid. Uh, yeah, and so that's why that could happen.
2: Or maybe no longer like laws, right? Like, um, right. Not that, not that that would make torture or taking away someone's free will like more or less ethical just because they're more or less legal or illegal. But yeah, um, I, I too noticed that and I felt like I didn't think it was out of character for Harry, but I, cause he's used it before, um, but I did think that was out of character for McGonagall. Um, she's always been sort of like a spirit and letter of the law kind of kind of person. But um, I don't know, maybe desperate times call for desperate measures. That seems really out of character though for her to even approach a situation like that. Um, but
0: well, and we do certainly get to see another side of her with Pier Totem Locomotor. And uh, it, is, it is funny to see her or hear her or read her say, uh, we, we teachers aren't quite good at magic, Mr. Potter.
1: Uh, and, uh,
0: <laughs> so, so I guess for next time, we'll have to end this, in, in this story, in this series, in this, uh, at least this iteration of this conversation and uh, uh, end our time at school by breaking back into school, which I suppose we've just already done.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. And this is a part you've been wanting to talk about. I think from like one of the very first conversations, you brought up something that happens here in these last chapters. So um
0: Oh my goodness. Yes, my pet theory of uh of all the theories I bring to the table. This is the one where uh well I finally get to put this one to the test and see whether it it, it survives the fires of y'all's intellects. Um
2: I don't and, I don't even know what you're referring to, but uh, uh, I'm excited.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the the great the great question of who should have died. Um,
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: Yes, and so uh, yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, Wes. I'm I'm very eager to to revisit that because I I think I I'll actually take the tact uh, like Kobe Bryant joining the uh, U.S. men's basketball team for the Olympics, um, where he, he said he was focusing on defense rather than shooting. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can't pick some holes in my my pet theory about that and then present it uh, a little uh, a little more lucidly and less cryptically next time.
1: All right.
2: Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, this sounds very cryptic. <laughs> I, I will say what I said before um, and not to like extend this project any more than either of you want, but given, I mean, I've already read the end and I would be surprised if we needed only an hour to discuss all of the things so maybe as we're reading we can think about like do we want to do like a final reading part one a final reading part two um if we think there's too much to do well in a in like one of these sessions then there that might be something we have to talk about off the off the air
0: okay okay Yeah, well let's do it well. Let's do it well since we've we've come so far. All right. Happy birthday, Wes. Happy birthday, Wes.
1: Thank you guys. Thanks. It's been lovely. Have a good
0: one. Have some cake or something or something wonderful. Happy birthday. See you later. See ya.
2: See ya. Bye. Bye.